This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. Hi, my name is Dr. Lou Diaz, pastor of Butte Bible Fellowship located at 2255 Pillsbury Road in Chico. And I'm providing inspirational teaching for you from God's Word each week. Listen to my weekly radio program, Encouraging Words with Dr. Lou Diaz, at 10 a.m. on Saturday or 10 a.m. on Sunday. If you would like to hear my current message series, you may call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521. It's even a little sparrow that falls out of a tree, and aren't you worth much more than a sparrow to him? You matter to God. He notices what's going on in your life. The reason I chose that hymn before my message is because the church at Smyrna was a persecuted church. It had suffered much persecution. And we're going to read about that now, if you'll turn with me, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the church of Smyrna, here are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you understand our suffering. You know what we have gone through, you know what we're going through, and you know what we're going to go through. Thank you, Lord, for caring for us. Thank you that we could cast our cares upon you because you care for us. Lord, hear our prayers as we come before you and we say we need your comfort, we need your compassion, we need your peace in the midst of our troubles. Thank you, Lord, for being with us. Amen. In our series called Dear Church, because these are letters from our Lord Jesus to seven churches in Asia Minor, and through them to us, recorded in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we are now looking at the letter of Jesus to the church at Smyrna, 25 miles north of Ephesus. It was called the Port of Asia because it was right he had a beautiful harbor on the Aegean Sea. And we're going to learn from this letter that Jesus understands our suffering. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. In what ways does Jesus understand what you're going through, your suffering? We're going to learn these principles 
and then I'm going to go through each one of them from the Scripture. The first principle is Jesus understands your suffering because he knows the end from the beginning. Jesus understands your suffering because he himself suffered and experienced death. Jesus understands your suffering because he does know your afflictions, your pain, and your poverty. Jesus understands your suffering because he describes even how evil attacks, and he knows that there's evil in the world, and it's having an impact on your life. And Jesus urges faithfulness over fearfulness, and he promises the crown of life. Let's look at these principles from the scripture itself. First of all, Jesus understands your suffering because he knows the end from the beginning. In Revelation 2.8, he introduces himself. He describes that aspect of his character that is relevant to and applicable to the suffering saints there in Smyrna. He says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. Now, earlier in chapter 1, he said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, which are the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so, if he's the A and the Z of all that is, then you know that he knows the end from the beginning. He is the Lord and the Master of history, both our personal history and the history of the world and the universe. Our Lord is the first and the last. Now this should bring great comfort to you and me, because in Jeremiah 29, 11, we read, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now we do go through hard times, but that doesn't mean those hard times define us. It doesn't mean that those hard times are here to stay and they're permanent. This too shall pass. God has plans for you, and they're ultimately for your best interest. They're for your good. The New Testament equivalent of Jeremiah 29.11 is Romans 8.28 that says, And we know that in all things, all things, think about something you've been struggling with, and we know in all things, including that thing you've been struggling with, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. But we shouldn't stop at Romans 8.28. We should move on to verse 29 because it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In other words, the definition of good, according to God, may not be your or my definition of good. Our definition of good is, well, I thought you were supposed to work all things so that they're comfortable and they're pleasant at all times. That's how I define good. And God says, no, I'm working all things for your ultimate good of you being conformed to the image of my son Jesus. 
That's the bottom line. There's a purpose, there's a plan, and there's a point to which you are headed. And that is Christ-likeness. And if it takes some chiseling off of some rough edges to see Christ shaped in you, then you're going to go through some hard times. Don't be surprised. Adversity builds Christ-likeness. And Jesus knows the end from the beginning, and he's working all things for good in your life. He has plans for you to give you hope and to give you a future. Secondly, uh, Jesus experienced suffering and death. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8b, he's not only known as the first and the last, he self-describes himself as the one who died and came to life again. Why is that so encouraging to you and to me? Number one, the fact that Jesus became a human, he, the word of God, became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. As one translation puts it for John 1.14, Jesus incarnate, that is, with flesh on, with meat on his bones, became a human being so that he could share in our humanity fully. So he knows the pain, the suffering, and the struggles you have. He's been through that emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. He has suffered, but without sin. Jesus died, and he came to life again. Romans 8.34 says, Who then is the one who condemns? That is, can anyone put a charge against one of Jesus' chosen ones, elect ones, saints? The answer is no one can. Why? Because Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Have you had someone say to you when you're going through a tough time, I'll be praying for you? And that, that, that means a lot. But then let's say your dearest brother calls you from Washington State and he says, I'm praying for you. Well, that means even more because he's your dearest brother. But think about Jesus, your Savior. He's at the right hand of God the Father and he's interceding for you. That should mean the most. So not only does he understand your suffering and pain because he's been through suffering all the way to the point of suffering death on a cross, he was tortured with the punches of the soldiers and the thorn of crowns and is stuck into his head and the mocking and the jeering and the being nailed to the cross after being whipped uh, 40 plus lashes. Jesus suffered. He knows what you're going through. He was rejected. He was abandoned. He was uh, denied by his disciples and by um, the authorities. He knows what it's like. He was crucified outside the camp, outside the city, a sign of utter rejection and humiliation. Jesus understands your pain, your suffering, because he's been through it. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable 
to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted, and the word temptation, or tempted here, also means trials. We have one who has been tempted and has gone through trials of every kind, just as we have been and are going through now, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Are you suffering? Are you struggling? Are you going through a hard time? Are you overwhelmed? Well, first of all, Jesus really can say, and he's the only one who can say, I know your pain. But secondly, because he knows your pain, he's approachable. You can come to him and say, help, I'm hurting right now. I'm overwhelmed. I need you. And guess what? The Lord provides his mercy and his grace to help you in your time of need. He gives you a supernatural supply of spiritual strength, spiritual peace, and spiritual hope so that you can put one foot in front of another and keep on keeping on. That's available to you because of all that Jesus did on the cross for you. John Stott wrote in his book, The Cross of Christ, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? This is John Stott writing. He writes, I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails to his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is God for me. He laid aside his immunity for pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of this. And I'd like to read to you The Long Silence, an anonymous piece that has always touched my heart. When the question is asked, does Jesus understand pain and suffering? I think of this, The Long Silence. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne, and most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, death. In another group, a 
African-American boy lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in the world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, an African-American, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic child. In the center of the plane, they consulted with each other, and at last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the, illegit let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he, that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses that verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. Because they realized Jesus had already gone through all that. Jesus did not live a sheltered life. Jesus entered our world and fully understands pain and suffering and injustice. And he came to do something about it. He came to deal with the root of suffering and pain and injustice. And the root of that is sin. And our battle is with Satan. And Jesus paid for our sin, and he defeated Satan on the cross. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus understands your pain and poverty. Revelation 2.9, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Yet you are rich. You know, the Lord sees what's going on in your life. And when you're hurting, when you're crying, when you are struggling, he knows what you're going through. He knows how vulnerable you feel. He knows how poor and how weak you are. But he knows something else. He knows you're hanging on to him for dear life. He knows you're trusting in him. And for that reason, he says, you may be down and feeling like you're out, but you're actually rich and you're a champion in my eyes. That's what the Lord's saying to you. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus gave up all the riches of heaven to become a human being, to die on the cross, so that if you trust in him, you will have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You will be rich indeed through your faith in Christ. And no one can take your inheritance away from you. It's reserved and preserved for you in heaven. There's no moth that can eat it, no rust that can um, cause it to be destroyed. Praise God. He knows your pain and your poverty. And Jesus describes even the, how evil attacks. Notice chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. He says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I'll tell you how evil works. First of all, there's a bunch of lies that are said against you. There's a lot of false accusations that are laid against you. And I'll tell you what, people who think they're religious are the worst ones. Because in the name of religion, they're actually doing the devil's work. You see, devil means adversary. And they are accusing you before me, before uh, others, and getting you to accuse you within yourself. That's how evil works. They try to destroy you from the inside out by telling lies about you. And Jesus goes on to say to this church, don't be afraid what you're about to suffer. Because it starts with verbal abuse, and then it moves to physical abuse. They say bad things about you, then they do bad things to you. Don't be afraid about what you're about to suffer, because the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. So when you think you're out of the frying pan, you're going to be in the fire. When you think things are bad, they're going to get worse. But listen carefully to what I'm going to say. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, the 10 days doesn't mean a literal 10 days. It means you will suffer persecution for a certain time frame. There will be a beginning, there will be an end, but it won't be endless. In other words, I put a chain on, on Satan, and he's, he's my... Uh, He's my pet. I'm holding him back. He cannot do <clears throat> um, ongoing damage to you. I restrain him. Jesus describes how evil attacks. And here's the most precious promise in Scripture about this. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Praise be to God. That even if they lie about us, even if they cause us physical pain, and even if they take our lives, they do not have the ultimate control or power over us. They cannot touch our souls because we have entrusted ourselves to the Lord. And that goes to the next point. Jesus urges faithfulness over fearfulness. Notice twice he says, do not be afraid. He says, do not be afraid in verse 9, but he also says it in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you 
in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. You see, the Lord says it's better to be faithful than fearful. When you're fearful, you're consumed with your enemy. When you're faithful, you're consumed with your Lord. It's better to have your eyes on Jesus than to have your eyes on anything else. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said this, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, they can kill my body, but I go to be with Jesus and I get a crown of life. Satan can harm the body, and, but he can't touch the soul. He can't do spiritual harm. Martin Luther had such a strong spiritual attack when writing in his upper room that he took his ink bottle from which he would dip his quill to write, and he threw it at this spiritual force, this demonic presence that was in the room, and to this day, you can see the ink splot on the wall. That's how strong he felt spiritual warfare. And he wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in that, he writes this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You see, our kingdom, our home, is the city built by God. The foundations have been laid by God. We're strangers and pilgrims passing through this world. And we're to be witnesses of Christ even unto death. That's what martyr means. Martyr means witness unto death. Are you willing to die for your faith? If you're not willing to die for your faith, you're not willing to live for your faith. Jesus urges faithfulness over fearfulness. And finally, Jesus promises the crown of life. Revelation 2, 10, and 11. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What is the second death? When you receive Christ, Jesus says, he who, dies will not, he who dies will live. In other words, when you trust in him who's the resurrection, when you cr- trust in Christ, you die once physically and you're in heaven. But if you don't trust in Christ, you die once physically and then you appear before the Lord at the great white throne judgment and you will be condemned to hell and that's the second death. So a bumper sticker put it right. Um, which says, uh, one birth, two deaths, two births, one death. So if you were born only once, but not trusted in Christ to be born again, you die physically and you'll die the second death of being condemned to hell after the great white throne judgment. But if you trust in Christ, 
So you're born physically and then you're born spiritually. You'll only die once. Physically, maybe, because Christ might come back and you won't die. You'll be caught up in the air with those who have preceded you. Praise be to God that James 1.12 says the same point. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. God wants to reward you for your faithfulness. And he says, hang in there. Hang on. Trust me. Stay faithful. I see what you're going through and I will reward you. Our pain and suffering in this life is but a drop in the bucket compared to the weight of glory to come. And I like what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said this, They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained through faith in Christ, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. That's C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce. In what ways does Jesus understand you? Do you feel understood in your suffering, knowing that he knows the end from the beginning, knowing that he's experienced suffering and death himself, knowing that he says, I know your pain and poverty, knowing that he has dialed in and described how evil attacks, knowing that he is urging you, stay faithful, don't be fearful, trust me, and knowing that he promises you a crown of life. Do you need encouragement? I want to share my spiritual gift of encouragement with you. If you would like to hear my current message series, you may call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521. Call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521 to find out how you can connect with our weekly worship services and faith-building messages from God's Word.